0: Awesome. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Thank you to uh, Parker and to Jake and Maggie. Uh, I man, what an awesome picture. It, it is hard to do what they've just done, uh, where you get up and you try to capture it in two weeks, uh, or capture two weeks in the span of just a few minutes to be able to share from your heart, and to be able to edit out all the things that you wish you could say, but you know you don't have time to, and uh, to be able to share. Just a, what a home run, man. Thank you all so much for sharing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we are. We've been moving through the book of 1 Corinthians now for a while. And uh, if if this is your first Sunday or first couple of Sundays, you're not really behind. It's not as though you had to get the first uh, six chapters to be able to be up to speed. Uh, All of our messages are on our website if you ever wanted to go back and listen to any certain ones from certain uh, passages of Scripture. But chapter 7 is is, uh, where we are today. We're going to be finishing out this particular chapter chapter, preparing for chapter 8 next week. So it's been a good run so far, and I think God's wanting to do some good things this morning uh, as well. Marriage is a universal concept, right? In chapter 7, Paul has been dealing a lot with the topic of marriage. You can't deal with marriage without, at the same time, dealing with the topic of the single life as well. Paul has dealt with both of those in chapter 7. He's talked about purity, he's talked about boundaries, he's talked about Marriage and divorce, and just a lot of different aspects of, uh, of marriage in, in chapter 7. And, you know, as you think about the concept of marriage, it really is a universal concept. And marriage is worldwide, obviously. The way people Handle it, the way people celebrate it uh, is different uh, from country to country and from culture to culture. I remember being in the Philippines. In fact, this team had a chance to see this as well. I remember being there and uh, catching, uh, it, for us, we saw the reception. We were at the reception we'd have been invited to of a wedding that had taken place. This year's team saw everything. Uh, but it, it, it blew my mind because I remember being at the reception and I'm in like hiking boots and I'm sweaty and I've got a backpack and here I am sitting in a wedding reception and uh, the bride is dancing you know, with, uh, you know, with her, her new husband and with her father and just different people that would come. And people would come up and they would pin things to her dress while she's dancing. And they'd just come up and just, you know, pin something to her dress. And I asked one of the, one of the folks from the Philippines, what are, the, what are they doing? They said, well, that's money. Well, now that's what I'm talking about. Now that's uh, <laughs> I mean, we'd have people get married really, really young in our culture if we uh, had that kind of thing going on. So, so really, when you look at marriage, it is a, it is a universal thing. Here in our country, we handle a little bit differently. You know, you'll have, um, uh, you know, the engagement, which is usually preceded by a fellow who's sweating profusely as he talks to a father about wanting to get engaged. And then you'll have... Um you know, the plans and the invitations and all those things and, and uh, the, the, the wedding service. Then you got the reception, then you got the engagement. And all that is just kind of part of the whole marriage experience here in our co- country typically. I mean, everyone's different, you know, but that, that's kind of the, the norm here. I remember one wedding that I was doing specifically, and uh, it was for Nathan and Lauren, actually. I got permission from Nathan to share this, not from Lauren, but uh, I thought I might, I might lose a friend here. But I remember staying. it was right here, and uh, the configuration was a little bit differently. But we, uh, we had come up, you know, we said kind of the opening part of the service. Would come up and we're standing on the platform and I'm standing you know like about, about right here and I have a feeling they remember this and uh, they had a unity candle in the service and one of the candles had gone out and uh, if you know Nathan that did not go well at uh, that portion of the service so I'm standing looking out at everybody the play I mean just everybody we I mean, were in the wedding service Nathan and Lauren are standing in front of me and Nathan's going the candle is out the candle went out. <laughs> <laughs> It was just great. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking, well, don't tell me. I'm standing in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, what am I going to do? So, so we get to, uh, you know, we kind of finish that part of the service. And I mean, that unity candle was going to be I- important, you know, in about 15 minutes. And uh, so we come to places, so let's pray. And so everybody closes their eyes, bows their head, and I'm praying. And about 10 seconds into the prayer, uh, a lady named Joni mocked. Some of you remember her when you were here there. She and her family have since moved away. She was the wedding coordinator. And so she sent her husband from the back. And while I'm praying, I, you know those long things you use to light your grill? You know those things? While I'm praying, and dear God, bless us. <laughs> yeah, there There's a significant breeze that blows when the air's on you know, across this platform. He could not get the thing lit, you know, and, and we also pray, and I'm hearing all this going on, and, uh, and I can't peek because none of you close your eyes when we we're praying, so you would have all seen me, <laughs> and, and so, so once it was all done, you know, when I heard, heard the, the click and stop, I said amen, you know, and off we went, they got married, it's been great ever since, but after it was over, um, Susie told me, she said, that was the longest prayer I have Because <laughs> she keeps her eyes closed while I'm praying. And, uh, and so I had to tell a story. So, you know, when you look at, at marriage, it is a universal concept. I can tell that story, you know, anywhere in our country, people would laugh. They'd get it because that's a part of our culture. Marriage is a universal concept. Well, that's what Paul's dealing with here in chapter seven. And as we finish out this chapter, again, he's talking about the concept of marriage, but he's also talking specifically about the single life as well. And so this morning, what I want us to look at are, are the relationship between relationships and our devotion to the Lord. Relationships and devotion to the Lord. So chapter 7 is where, we, where we're going to be. Let, let me give you a little bit of a backstory here if, if you're, you've not been with us here recently. Uh, chapter, the whole book of 1 Corinthians actually is a letter that Paul has written, and he wrote it to a group of Christians. They, comp, they comprise a church in the city of Corinth. This was 2,000 years ago. Corinth was a very ungodly city. They did not have churches on every corner. They didn't you know, customarily run around with their Bibles and talk about what God was doing in their lives. It was an ungodly city, perhaps the most ungodly city in the, in the, whole, you know, the whole world at that point. And so Paul went there, the Apostle Paul, he shared the gospel a few years before. A, a number of folks came to relationship with Christ. They decided, you know, I don't want sin in my life anymore. I'm going to turn from it and I'm going to ask Jesus, God's son who died in my Place to forgive me and take over my life, and many of them had made that decision. So they they suddenly became a group of redefined people. I mean, they were new people in Christ. They were a church now, and so as they began to grow, they had issues. Paul heard some of those issues. Once he left town, uh, he got a letter as well, telling him about some of the issues, and they were significant issues. And so what Paul did was he would ultimately, eventually, write a letter. You have it there in front of you, called First Corinthians, and he's dealing with a lot of the different issues that would come up. Some of them that were, I mean, they they were, again, they were significant. He had to say something, lest this church ultimately, you know, die from the inside out. And so 1 Corinthians is a letter. It was a letter written by a person to a group of Christians, and uh, he's dealing with issues that a lot of us still today deal with. So let me say this before we jump in. The the passage we're going to look at this morning at the end of chapter 7 is a really, really difficult passage to look at. Not as much for the content as it is, it's just a little bit hard to follow. I think if we could have been there in that church reading it with all the other Corinthian Christians around us, we would be able to understand it a little bit better. You almost get a sense that they knew some things maybe that we don't. And when we read through this portion of chapter 7, There's just some difficulties there. There is some some challenges. But the good news is I think the the real meat of what Paul is trying to say, we can understand it very clearly. So here's what I'm going to do. I don't want to miss the forest for the trees, you know, the old saying. I don't want us to get bogged down and you know what was Paul meaning in this verse or that verse so much. I want us to see the overall obvious implications of what come out of this passage. And so let's go ahead and begin. We're going to move through slowly. And then I want to wrap it up with just three implications from what we read. What, what are these, of all that we read, what do these things mean to us today? And uh, I think it's going to hit most every one of us, uh, hopefully in a way that will draw us closer in our relationship with the Lord. So let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's go ahead and begin in verse 25. That's kind of where, we, where we'll pick up. Uh, we left off last week, the verse before, so let's pick up here. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. Let me just stop there for a moment. He says now concerning, he's shifting gears here. Again, he's dealing with a different topic now. The word virgins in the Greek language, if we could suddenly all become Greek scholars for a moment, we would understand that that is speaking of those who, have, who are not married and have never been married. That's what the word refers to. We could probably explain it a little bit better in our English translation, but that's the word that most English translations of Scripture use today. So he's talking about those that are unmarried, have never been married. He says, so concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. It doesn't mean Paul is now suddenly speaking on his own without God inspiring him. Uh, he's just saying, basically, as we saw last week, that what I'm about to share you, Jesus never covered during his earthly ministry. You know, this is brand new information. Jesus never really spoke specifically about what I'm about to cover, Paul is saying, but it still is inspired of God. It's still the scripture. It's still the Bible. It's still without error. We can trust it. Okay, So he says, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy, verse 26 through 28. He says, I think then this is good in view of the present distress. Now now the question, remember I said we would maybe understand a little better if we were with them. We don't know what he's talking about when he says this present distress. He could be talking about something that was specific to the Corinthians at that time, You know, Paul could be speaking of a distress that they all knew about it. When they read this letter, they, oh, we know exactly what he's talking about. He could have been talking about that, or he could have been meaning, you know, we live in a hard world. Life is hard. This is a fallen world, and we catch the fallout from that often in our lives. So Paul's saying, "I, I think it's good for you, in view of this present distress, whether it's specific or whether it's just overall, life is hard, that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife, but if you marry you 've not sinned. If a virgin marries she 's not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life and i 'm trying to spare you now the the first kind of the knee jerk reaction there is to think, well, it sounds like Paul 's against marriage you know he's, either that or it sounds like he really has no boundaries in marriage. You know, does he really even i mean this just seems inconsistent well let's look at the next passage because he begins to get a little more a little more specific look look at what he says, the beginning in verse twenty nine this is the key to the whole passage we'll see today. He says, "But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy." As though they did not possess those who use the world, as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Now, now here, here's what Paul's getting at. You read that, and then you really begin to think. Okay, he he is just a twisted individual. What is he saying? He tells me that if I have a wife, to live as though I don't have a wife. I mean, is he telling me that, that you know everybody's fair game now? I mean, that doesn't sound like the Bible to me. No, he's not saying that. What Paul is doing here in this passage, in that little section there I just read, is he's he's doing something brilliant that every one of us have need of. He is putting out on the table for consideration the need for balance and the need to prioritize in our lives. If you look back again, let's go back one slide. He he mentions five different things. He mentions marriage or, or let's even say relationships. He says those who have wives. He then talks about sorrow in life, those who weep. He talks about celebration, joy in our lives. He says those who rejoice. He talks about possessions and money, those who buy. And he talks about the world in general, those who use the world. Here's what Paul's saying. He's talking about how the times are coming to an end. The last verse there, the last sentence he says, the form of this world is passing away. What he's saying is, is your time is short. But I mean, you are not guaranteed your next breath. In fact, for us, we will never have this same exact assembly of people ever again. I mean, you're part of something really unique. By, just by being here, you will never have this assembly of people again. Next week, there'll be a whole different crowd. Some of you will be here, some won't. Some will say, I ain't never going back to that church again. And others will say, hey, I can't wait to get back again you know, next week. A year from now, who knows where God will not have called to other cities and to other states? Who knows whom God will not have called out even into eternity? Right, so Paul is saying the time is short. This world is passing away. There is no guarantee. Even though you live like it, he says there is no guarantee. And so here's what you need in your life, people. He says, you, Corinthians, you need balance and you need priority. Here's the issue for us, is that many of us get so out of balance, so, so many of us have our priorities so messed up and so out of whack, and Paul lists five different things there, as I said, relationships, sorrow, celebration, possessions, and just the whole life in general. And what he's saying is, for those of you, for example, who are married, he says, live as though you don't even have a spouse. He's not saying uproot your boundaries and get rid of them. He's not saying that at all. He says, you need to keep in mind that the most important thing in your life is not your marriage. Your most important thing is your devotion to the Lord. He's going to get to that in just a second. He says, you need to live in light of the fact that your days on this earth are short and what defines you is not your single life. It's not your married life. It's not your relationships with your children or your grandchildren. He says, in fact, you should live with a mindset that you're, you don't even have any of that What because why? The most important thing about who you are is where you stand with God. Here's what I often see. And I not only here's what I see, here's what I wrestle with as a man with one wife, three kids in a very busy world. Here's what I wrestle with, finding the priorities and finding the balance that I need on a daily basis. And there is a real temptation. Some here could say, you know, Brooks, truth be told, I served God with more passion and more effectiveness before I was married than I do now after I'm married. I serve God with more passion, more effectiveness, more availability before children than after children. And you know what? Paul's going to own up to that truth. For some, marriage and relationships dominates life. Christ is now moved. To a spot just beneath the spouse, or maybe just beneath the kids, or maybe just beneath the grandkids, or just beneath that boyfriend, or just under that girlfriend, or just under that pursuit for a a spouse, to the point to where if we're not careful, we come to a place where we relegate Jesus to a spot He never died to try to fill. He died to be first, foremost, top, highest, greatest in our lives, and period. Married, single, doesn't matter. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, you need to keep your balance, you need to keep your priorities in place. Christ alone, just as Jake's saying, Christ alone is to fill the spot of supremacy in your life. No marriage is going to fulfill or add to you what Christ can. No, no relationship is going to accomplish that. He moves on to the second thing. He talks about sorrow. You know, for some, if you're not careful, there's a tendency because life is so hard, life is so difficult There is a tendency, if we're not careful, that when we go through a trial in our life and we go through a very deep, dark valley in our lives to where even as believers, we get stuck there. And we come to a place to where if we're not careful, and this isn't diminishing the fact that life gets hard, it's not diminishing sorrow. God gives us the emotional capacity to be sorrowful. That's not a sin. But if we're not careful, we can get stuck in a place because of the difficulties of our lives where we begin to live with a mindset as, as though God doesn't even exist. And listen, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, when you placed your faith in him, he promised to you, he's never going to leave you, he's never going to leave you on a curb and say, man, I'll ch- I'm checking out, I've got some stuff to do over in, you know, in Asia, they need the gospel, I'll see you in heaven, okay, you're on your own. He's never going to do that. And when you have a relationship with Christ, no matter how dark the valley may be, uh, David in Psalm 23 said that death is nothing more than just a shadow, the shadow of death, nothing to fear for the believer. He says that that, that whenever we look at at, at even the deepest of sorrow, ultimately, that sorrow doesn't define us. We're able to move through because of the reality of Christ in our lives. Celebration, again, for some of you, you prayed. I mean, you prayed with all your heart. You fasted. You you haven't been four hours without a meal, perhaps, at times, but you fasted for a job because you needed it. And you prayed and you fasted and you talked to people. God, if you just give me this job, please just give me this job. God, get me out of the work I'm in right now. I I want this job. And he answered the prayer. And you know what? Truth be told, you've never been further from him since. He gave what you asked for and it was that, that blessing that created distance that you had never known to that point between you and the Lord. It's ironic, isn't it? Paul says, you cannot allow your rejoicing to to qualify who you are he says those of you who are married live as though you're not those of you who are in sorrow live as though you're not those of you who are rejoicing live as though you're not those of you ultimately he moves on to the to the next verse those of you who buy he's don't let possessions uh uh, be the the centerpiece of your life there is no house there's no possession there's no amount of money there's no retirement there's no vacation spot there is nothing in this world that will equate with who Jesus is in you and those who use the world, life itself. So what he's talking about here, he's talking about balance. He's talking about the need for priorities ultimately in our lives. You know, Jesus said the same exact thing, didn't he? Matthew 6, 33, look at what he says. Seek what? First, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so Paul is reiterating in that that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 exactly what Jesus himself had said, that he alone deserves to be first. Let's go back to verse 32, the next passage in chapter 7. Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. Paul gets very practical here. He says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Paul, again, he's, you you can't discount that, right? You can't argue with that. Paul says, the woman who's unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who's married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. He says, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. See, that last line is so important because that's what Paul's aiming at. He is aiming for these Corinthian believers that were so back just backwards in their understanding of what freedom in Christ really meant. He's saying to these Corinthian believers who had so badly missed it in the area of marriage and relationships, he's saying what matters most is your undistracted devotion to the Lord. Whether you were married or whether you were single, Christ died not just to set you free, but he died for you to know him, for you to put him on display, and for you to live a life that ultimately serves him in the eyes of other people. And so he's saying, if you're married, there are going to be difficulties in that. There are going to be unique, unique things that make it very difficult for you to serve the Lord the way you did when you were single. And by the way, for the single person, there are unique difficulties there that make it at times difficult. You have to be very intentional about your service ultimately to the Lord. So Paul's talking about the need to be undistracted in our service to God ultimately. He, he moves into the next passage, uh, which I would say is probably the hardest three verses in the whole entire book of 1 Corinthians. He says, if any man, and the difficulty there is who, who's any man, who's he speaking of, If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin or unmarried, never-married daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. He who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his will, has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he'll do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well. He who does not give her in marriage would do better. I don't want to get bogged down there. That's a tough, uh, the hardest three verses in the whole entire book of 1 Corinthians, in my opinion. For some of you, you're a little confused because when I read that passage, you read right along with me in your Bibles. Uh, it translates that way. For others of you, it translates differently. If you're using the New International Version, for example, that verse translates completely differently. It doesn't take away from our ability to trust God's Word because we, because we trust it completely. But translators translate that passage differently because the context is so hard to figure out. Again, it would be easier if we were there 2,000 years ago. But in this passage, it's hard. Some translators translate that as a father who has authority over his unmarried daughter. You're talking first century uh, Greco-Roman world. It was customary for fathers to control, ultimately, uh, who their daughters married, when their daughters married. Some say Paul's speaking in that context. Others say, no, the context is different. The context is more of, a, of an engaged couple. So if you use a translation that says betrothed, that's what that's speaking of. Regardless of exactly what it means, what Paul is saying is, is not that marriage is evil, not that marriage is bad. He says if, you, if, if the father gives the daughter marriage, if she's married, that's fine. If she doesn't, that's better. Why? Because of the practical benefits of serving the Lord as the single. Paul is not anti-marriage. He's not anti-marriage at all. What he's speaking of here is the undying devotion that must qualify every single person's life. Regardless of whether they are single, whether they are married, as in the next passage, whether they're widowed, Paul covers all of it. And the bottom line, the foundation is undistracted devotion to the Lord. Last two verses, verses 39 and 40. He says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband's dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. It doesn't mean <laughs> only to a Christian. Uh, you ask you ask a person if they're a Christian, and chances are, around here, you know, you'll get the answer, "Yeah, I'm a Christian." But that means a hundred different things to people. You know what I would say if if my daughter was was at the age where she was looking to. Uh, you know, considering uh, you know who to marry and those kinds of things, I wouldn't say, "Honey, just go, just go find a Christian." <laughs> you know, that's not enough. I've you know, you've met Christians that'll rip you off one side, up one side, down the other, right? And oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church. You know, someone who's pursuing the Lord with all their heart. It's kind of what Paul's getting at. In verse forty says, "But in my opinion, she's happier, she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the spirit of God." Again, you read that and you think, "Boy, Paul, yeah, man, he's just against marriage." No, no, he's not. He's for a life that is fully yielded to Jesus Christ because Paul's life was changed by Savior who paid everything for his forgiveness. That's what he's speaking of. So you look at a tough passage of Scripture. We work through it. I think what we find when the dust settles is that there are some implications that come out of this. In other words, uh, with, with all the difficulties of reading that passage, I think it's clear what Paul's getting at. And so what I would see would be three implications, and I hope you'll jot these down because they're so important. Let's go ahead and bring up the first one. The first implication is this, that the single life and the married life create unique tensions that must be managed, not eliminated. The married life and the single life, both. Whether you're married or whether you're single, where you are right now creates certain tensions in your life, and those tensions, and I'm not talking about a couple who's always fighting, and I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to beat you up, and I'm going to shoot you, and that kind of, you know, we're not all that kind of tension, okay? We're talking about the tensions that come with life, married, children, busy, job, all of that, that's what we're talking about. The single life and the married life both, they have unique tensions that are created that God allows, and those tensions are not to be eliminated but managed. For some of you, you've tried to eliminate tensions that God is allowing in your marriage and you are driving each other crazy because God allows those tensions to exist. You look at this ball, right, a baseball. Some of you play baseball, some of you used to play baseball, some of you wished you played baseball, some of you thought you could play baseball, all right? So here's a baseball. You got a lot of different pitches that, that you can throw if you're a pitcher in the game of baseball. One of those is a curveball. What you learned, hopefully you didn't learn it at the age of nine or ten, hopefully you're a little older, but when you learned to throw that curveball, what your coach taught you was the, per, was the proper grip for that pitch. He told you exactly where to hold it based on how you were going to be throwing it. He told you exactly uh, the pressure to put on there. And when you began to throw that pitch, what you learned was, is that that tension was a necessity. You had to put pressure at that, at a certain point in that ball, lest you not have the pitch. If you let off on the pressure, if you let off on the tension, that curveball ceases to exist because the tension makes the pitch. And if you lessen your grip, what happens is that ball's going to go anywhere. You had to have tension. The the, 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 the key was not to eliminate the tension. The key was to manage it and to focus it in the proper way. And for you as a single person, you face unique tensions in your life that God allows. Some of those tensions may be, for example, loneliness. Loneliness. There are times when you may look at your friends and you think everybody's getting married or there are times when you get frustrated and you think how much longer before I get married and there are a hundred other tensions that come with that. Some of you may be tempted to question God or to get angry with God or to lower your standards, to compromise. Here's the thing, God allows those tensions in your life as a single person, why? Because they teach you, they teach you what it means to be patient, to wait upon the Lord and to trust him to fill your life in a way that no spouse can And that is a tension that if God eliminated that, there's no telling what we would do as single people, right? There's no telling what we would do. The tension creates an environment for us to where as we wait, we must trust Him. And for married people, Those of you that are married, you've got a busy life, you've got frustrations, you've got things that come in your marriage, you've got all kinds of things that you have experienced that make it difficult, and what you have to learn and what the tension in your marriage creates is that you have to learn how to work through conflict in a way that teaches you to love unconditionally, to let go of the past, and to reflect the Savior who forgave you unconditionally. And those problems are not just problems. Those problems are tension. And if you lose the tension, you try to get rid of it, and if you're successful, you lose the pitch. The tension is a thing that God has allowed to stay because it teaches you dependence on him. For you husbands, you may seek to, uh, to be the husband God calls you to be, that Scripture speaks of. And you are a husband who wants to lead your family. You want to love unconditionally. You want to be the one who, who makes your family stronger and better. You don't want to be the dead weight, right, that pulls the family down. And yet you feel the weight of that responsibility. Ephesians speaks of how the husband is called to be the head of the family. And he is to lead as Christ led and as Christ loved the church. And there are times in my life where I feel the weight of that. And there are times I wish I could say, Susie, you know, honey, why don't you just take this one and run with it? You know, I don't really want to lead right now because this is hard. And I don't want to blow it. And I don't feel so sure of myself. There are times I would love to hand over that leadership, but the Bible won't let me do that. And you know what that tension creates? It creates in me a need to be constantly seeking the face of the Lord for wisdom and dependent upon Him so that He can live His life through and lead through me. And that tension is a good thing. Because if the tension wasn't there, I would try to do it all myself and we would be the next family on the rocks. The tension is good. I can't eliminate it. I have to manage it. Wives, you read the Bible. You read in Ephesians where it speaks of how the wife is to be submissive to her husband and you're, you're smart enough to understand that doesn't mean what the world says. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you have no voice. You know that. But it means that there is a place biblically where you step back and you allow your husband to lead and it scares you to death scares you to death. And you think, Brooks, you don't know the man I'm married to. You wouldn't want him leading anything. (laughs) Try not to look at anybody, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard, man. It's just hard. It puts you in a position where you trust. You have to trust. You have to say, God, I believe your word and I I take a step back and I let him lead. And and it puts you in a position where you feel that tension and you can't eliminate that tension. You've got to manage that tension. And if you try to eliminate it, you lose the pitch. You lose what God's trying to do. But if you can manage that tension, that tension can be a good thing. And you can learn what it means to trust in the Lord's leadership and to trust in God providing for you in a way that no other person can. And that even if they make a wrong decision, it's going to be okay. And even if they take a step, even outside of God's will, God has made promises to you that no other person can take away from your life as a believer. And the tension whether you are single or whether you are married, is something that God wants you to manage. He's probably not going to get rid of it anytime soon because it teaches you dependence on Him. That's one of the implications that comes out of that passage. Second implication, and I'll, I'll be done quickly, is that every life must be intentional about pursuing Christ above all else. Paul makes it real clear. There are benefits to the single life in regards, generally speaking, I know there are single parents. He's speaking from a general perspective. Some of you are single parents think, Brooks, I was, I'm busier now as a single parent than I ever was married. Paul's not, he's not trying to speak to every circumstance. He's looking generally. And he says that there are certainly benefits to the single person who is not married to serving the Lord. There are distractions that exist in the married life that don't exist in regards to devotion to Christ in the single life. But I don't care, Paul says, whether you're married or single undistracted devotion to the Lord is a non-negotiable. And for some, perhaps, maybe even you, you've been making a lot of excuses as to why you can't serve the Lord. And I'm not trying to push for more people working in preschool or more volunteers, you know, manning a front door. It's not that at all. But you are not serving God with the abilities and the talents and the passions that He's giving you. You're serving, using those things to make a, to, to draw a paycheck, and there's nothing wrong with that but you're not serving the Lord the way God's called you to because you're allowing the other distractions of the singled life or the married life to pull you away from serving Him. Every single life must be intentional. Intentional is the key word. You've got to be intentional. Service to God doesn't happen by accident. You must be intentional to work through the distractions of putting your life as exhibit A, Jesus on display. Implication number three is that whenever marriage is allowed biblically, Not talking about the guy who's tired of his wife, he's going to go find a new one. Not talking about that. Whenever marriage is allowed biblically, the choice to marry is a good versus better decision, not a right versus wrong decision. That passage may sound like, again, that God is against marriage. Read the Bible as a whole, He's not. He implemented it, put it in place early on in the big book, right? God is for marriage. God designed marriage. God created marriage. And whenever we come to that place where that's on the table for consideration and it's allowed biblically, then that choice is a good versus better based on a lot of things. What does God want for me? What do I want for myself? That's a part of it. What are my desires? how will I be able to serve the Lord? All those play into the mix. It's a good versus better, not a right versus wrong decision. You know, you look at this passage of Scripture and as difficult as it is to Understand some parts of it. I think the whole forest, you know, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That if you're in marriage, what a blessing that is. Do you have an enormous responsibility there to represent Christ to your family? It doesn't get you off the hook for serving the Lord. In fact, he may create opportunities because of your marriage to honor and to serve him. What a great thing. If you're single, not married. God has a desire to use this stage in your life as well to put himself on display through your life. There are challenges that are unique to the single life. It's not better than, worse than. It's different. Marriage is different from the single life, and the single life is different from marriage. God wants to use this stage of your life as you live out a life fully devoted to Christ to put himself on display where you are, for who you are, so that people see him through you. There are going to be tensions that come. There's going to be difficulties that come. Many of those God's going to allow because it enables you to experience something that you would have missed without. But as you trust Him and as you follow Him and as you keep Christ at the center of who you are and as you let others know that He wants to be the center of who they are as well, what you find is regardless of your setting, God begins to do work (laughs) in you and through you that you would have completely missed had jesus not been in the picture let's pray god it's amazing how applicable uh, a book written so long ago is to our daily lives lord thank you that it's your word and thank you that you know how to drive it into our circumstances lord i pray today lord for those that um are living out the single life, Lord, and they face the unique challenges that come through that. I pray that they'd be able to recognize the tensions that are there and even be grateful, as Paul was later in, in his letters to the Corinthians, that he would even be grateful for those difficulties because it teaches him that when he is weak, you're strong. May that be the perspective for singles and marrieds alike. Lord, for those that are married, there are unique challenges and tensions that come there. But Lord, those tensions are not really to be eliminated necessarily as much as as we just manage them. We're grateful for them because they teach us what it means to follow you and to be dependent upon you and and to invest our life in another. Lord, the list just goes on and on. But God, we also see out of this passage that really there's there's no excuse for us not living a life fully devoted to Christ. You, You didn't die, Lord, to be our hobby. Jesus, you didn't come and you didn't take a cross on our behalf so that we can just have warm, fuzzy feelings when we need it. Lord, you came to invade and to take over the life of every person who needed you. And Lord, it's as we turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ that you do just that, that you come to take over. And so God, may we be found as individuals, may we be found as a church that is characterized by a surrendered life, surrendered marriages, surrendered families. God, may you identify who we are. and May it be easily known to any who know us that you reign in us. And so God, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that it all goes back to a Savior named Jesus who stands ready even today to forgive and to take over the life that's yielded to him even right now this morning. And so God, we pray that you bless the decisions we make now. Help us to apply this in our lives in a way that that you'd have us to. Not just to hear it and forget about it, but to begin to live it out starting now. And so we thank you for what you'll do during this time of decision. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.